Well, I have two uh, stories to share with you this morning as I thought of these as I was preparing this sermon, getting ready for this sermon. I, I, some of you may have heard these stories before in different contexts, but um, they're, they're two stories that I think of as I think about kind of where we're going in, in our sermon today. One involves uh, me and my brother. So when we were younger, I was probably 10 years old. He's probably five years old. And these aren't incredibly long stories, but I like to tell it and, um, you know, show my lordship over my brother for a little bit, at least my sparts for a little bit. But I thought this was one Saturday morning and we were, you know, we had woken up and mom and dad, I think, were, you know, doing something else. And so we were about to have breakfast and, and I was, had already eaten my breakfast and I thought I'd act like I was going to do something nice for my brother. If he were here to tell you, he would say that, yeah, I never did anything nice for him. I just acted like I was going to do nice things. And that was one of those times I said, hey, Justin, that's my brother's name. I'll, I'll make breakfast for you. Uh, and my breakfast consisted of making him cereal. So I poured it in the bowl and he's thinking I'm being nice and I wasn't being nice. And while he wasn't looking, instead of taking regular milk, 2%, 1%, whatever we had in the refrigerator, I took buttermilk out and put that in his cereal so that when he went to take a nice big bite of his cereal, he absolutely spewed out buttermilk and cereal all over the place. So uh, he got me back more than a few times on different things that I won't go into, but that's one story. Uh, the other story I think about is involving my wife and I, and she might tell this story a little bit differently. That tends to happen. Wives tell the stories differently than their husbands do oftentimes. Uh, but when we were dating, um, I, I think it was when we were dating. See, I'm, I'm not great at details. She's got all these details down. But uh, when we were dating, I, I told her we were going to go see a movie together. And uh, as she tells it, she says that I told her it was a roman romantic comedy that we were going to go see. Um, if you've seen the movie What Lies Beneath, then you know that that's not a romantic comedy. It's more of like a horror film, uh, and I'm not even a horror guy, so I don't like that. Uh, but she got in there. I guess it worked because maybe she got a little bit closer to me. I'm not going to get into that, but uh, you know. Uh, but uh, anyways, it was it was uh, funny how it worked out that we went to this movie and she was not expecting what she saw on the screen. She. Uh, did not like me for a few days after that, though. She, uh, she didn't think that was very nice. And I don't know if I remembered or did it on purpose. I guess it depends on how you feel about me, whichever way you think I might go. But I was thinking about those stories as I thought about our lesson today. Have you ever grabbed something to use it, thinking that you were grabbing one thing, and turns out it was something completely different? I kind of actually did that last night. Somebody brought, I don't know who you were, but you brought like flavored water. And I went to take a drink of water and it was Mandarin orange flavored water. It wasn't bad. Was that you guys that brought that? Uh, oh, it happened to John too. And, and it just threw me off. You ever drank something thinking it was one thing and, and it was another? Or grabbed something thinking it was one thing and turns out it was entirely different? Or went to something thinking it was one thing and turns out it was entirely uh, a different thing? From time to time, we do this, right? This happens in our lives and different, um, different things that happen. And we even do this sort of thing with people sometimes. We think we know one thing about a person and turns out we didn't know what we thought we knew about that person. In fact, this kind of thing actually happened 
to Jesus at times as he lived and as he taught. There were people who would latch on to him and, and what he was saying because they thought that he was standing for something and saying something, saying one thing, only to find out that he was actually saying and standing for something entirely different. And when they finally did realize it, it didn't sound or taste all that great to them. And we are going to look at one such instance of that today. Before we get there, though, we've been in a series, in the midst of a series called When God Asks the Questions. And we're actually almost through this. We'll wrap things up next week and move into a, a, a new uh, series of, of teachings. But we've been looking at different questions that God asks throughout Scripture. We looked at some in the Old Testament that God himself asked. We've looked at a few, a couple so far, and uh, we'll look at today and, and next week of questions that Jesus, God's Son, asks of, of human beings in Scripture to see what is it that we can glean, what is it that we can learn from these questions that God asks of us. And today we come uh, to, again, a question that Jesus asks, and it's a question, again, that I think all of us need to answer and evaluate in our lives. We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 13. And I know there's a lot that we're going to get into. If you have um, your note sheets, you know that there's a lot on that. Uh, if you don't have them, they're, they're back in the back and you can uh, go grab one. But uh, there, there's a lot to get through and hopefully we can uh, do that this morning. So anyways, we pick up the story, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they reply, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Skip down to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This conversation, this exchange between Jesus and Peter is really a perfect example and illustration of people thinking about Jesus as being about one thing when in truth he's actually up to something entirely different than they thought he was. Jesus asked Peter who Peter thinks he is and Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God and Peter gets the answer right. He, he gives the right answer. So far, so good. But then Jesus, in terms more blunt and plain than really he's ever spoken about and in up to this point, begins to explain what he's ultimately been sent to earth to do. That he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, that he would eventually be killed, but also that he would be raised again on the third day. The problem is I'm not sure they heard anything past the suffer and killed Part. That's all they could focus on in the moment, what they heard out of their teacher's mouth. Their understanding of the Messiah was that he was headed to a throne, not a cross. They thought that he had been sent to deliver them from 
bondage, from Roman bondage, just as Moses had been sent to deliver the Egyptians from, or to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And when Jesus comes on the scene, I mean, you think about it, he's got this power that can miraculously heal the sick, that can, can feed thousands with the, just a sack lunch of bread and fish. He has the masses in the palm of his hands, and he's got the miracle working power of God at his fingertips. He can walk on water, he can do all of these things. But now he's talking about suffering and being rejected and being killed. That just didn't fit the job description that they had for the Messiah. This wasn't the revolution that Peter and the other disciples had envisioned. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, if you can imagine Peter doing that. He says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. It's not going to happen on my watch. Jesus. I'm going to make sure this does not happen. And Jesus, uh, in turn, uh, turns to Peter, and we're not going to get into it, but actually rebukes Satan. He rebukes Peter, but he actually rebukes Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Can you imagine being in Peter's sandals in that moment? For maybe the first time, Peter realizes that Jesus is is up to something entirely different than what he had expected. Peter had the right person. He he knew who Jesus was, but he had the wrong job description. And as hard of a time as it probably was for Peter to swallow what Jesus was saying, Jesus had even more for Peter to chew on. Verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. More than likely, Peter had in mind that following Jesus would lead to his own throne of sorts. That's where he thought this thing was going, that Jesus would wind up on a throne. He would overthrow Rome. He would wind up on a throne of his own, and Peter would maybe serve as his advisory committee. After all, he's already doing that to Jesus, right? Or maybe perhaps uh, Peter would serve as Jesus' secretary of defense, especially when you consider how Peter wields a sword, as we see later on in Matthew chapter 26. But as Jesus makes clear, there's a cross Not just in his own future, but there's also a cross in Peter's future as well. And for anyone who would follow after him. So really quickly, I just want to make three observations, and these are in your notes, in regard to Jesus' famous line here in verse 24. First, when when Jesus speaks of, of taking up our cross... He isn't simply laying down requirements or or qualifications for following him. Let me explain what I mean. I I think it's easy to kind of think of, of, of this line that Jesus says about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him as though Jesus is saying, if you just check these two things off, okay, deny yourself, take up your cross, then you can follow me. Or, or unless you do these things, then you can't follow me. And that's, I get where that thinking comes from, but that doesn't really capture, I think, the nuance of what Jesus is trying to get across here. I think a big part of what he means is something more along the lines of, if you're really going to pull this thing off, following me, if you're really going to pull this off, this idea of following me, Peter, there is no way to get around denying yourself and taking up your cross. It's just going to be 
inevitable. There's no other way. If you're going to follow me, then you need to understand that your future involves a cross too and not a throne. You see, Jesus' will and Peter's will are going to come into conflict with one another. Somewhere along the journey, Peter's will and Jesus' will are going to come into conflict, and something's got to give. And the same is true for your life. It may not be now, it may not be tomorrow, but at some point in your life, and I'm guessing it's already happened, your will and Jesus' will are going to come into conflict with one another, and something has to give. It is impossible to succeed in really following Jesus without denying ourselves and taking up our cross because sooner or later our will is going to come into conflict with his and something has to give. Speaking of taking up our crosses, that leads me to a second observation. Taking up our cross is something that we voluntarily take up in the name of following Jesus. I think that's an important distinction. It's something that we voluntarily take up. You know, when Jesus speaks of taking up our cross, that, that means something, I think, a little bit different than we often turn, oftentimes think of, or at least the way we sometimes verbalize that idea of taking up our cross. Occasionally, you'll hear, and maybe you've even said this yourself, something, uh, somebody say something along the lines of, well, that's just my cross to bear. You ever said that? Or ever heard somebody? That, that, that's just my cross to bear. And usually we, we say that in reference to something that's been imposed upon us, something that we've had to deal with that really had nothing to do with us, right? It's something that happened to us, be it a cold or some sickness or some illness or some character flaw, or maybe some in-laws or maybe some type of adversity that you've had to deal with. You, the list goes on and on, right? And so a lot of times people will, you know, us included sometimes, will chalk those things up and say, well, you know, it's, it's just my cross to bear. Just my cross to bear. But here's the deal. Those aren't things you willingly took up, right? Those are just things that happened to you along the way of life. Now, there's no question that we can glorify God by how we respond to the negative things that happen to us in our lives, by the things that, that we have to endure. But Jesus isn't just talking about any form of suffering. Jesus is talking about a form of suffering, hardships, adversity, that we face as a direct result of our allegiance and following him. Not just things that we have to deal with in our lives, and I'm not making light of those things, but in direct correlation to our submit, submittance and, and following of him. One's cross is not just something that is involuntarily imposed upon them. One's cross is something that one voluntarily takes up in the name of following Jesus as, and as an implication for following Jesus. I like what um, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. He said, to endure the cross is not tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's wrapped up in what Jesus is telling us here. Speaking of following Jesus, the third observation is this. Following Jesus is the point. Okay, Not, not suffering or self-denial, and it, it's not to say that those things, obviously those things come with that, but the point is following Jesus. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Not the glorification somehow or the, the, um, the, the 
lifting up of, of suffering and self-denial that we may have to endure. In fact, Peter himself would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, But how is it to your credit, he says, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Said every kid ever, right? Um, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example <coughs> Excuse me, that you should follow in his steps. Again, following Jesus is the point. Not suffering, not self-denial. Again, I, I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say. I think his words sum it up well. He says, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road, which is too hard for us. Let me read that again. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, no more of me. To see only him, that's my view, who goes before me and no more the road, which is too hard for us. I got to tell you, I read those words and I'm so convicted because I'm not there yet. I want to be, that's the goal, but I'm not there yet. I'm still all too aware of myself and the road before me. But then calling, after calling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, Jesus gives a promise. Verse 25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Jesus makes it very clear that our own lives are at stake in this decision to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow him. And yet in our culture, it seems so counterintuitive that the way we find our lives is by actually denying ourselves and losing our lives for Jesus, right? That, that seems so backwards in our culture. How, how do you gain your life by giving up your life? It seems so counterintuitive in the way that we live and the culture that we have. It, it seems so counterintuitive that the way I'm going to find my life is by no longer living life the way I want to live it, but rather living life the way he wants me to live it. And yet, ultimately, the reason that we don't follow Jesus at times is because we're looking to save our lives and live the way that we want to live. We think that our salvation, the, the essence, the fullness of life, is in getting what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, right? That that's where life is found. If I can just get what I want, when I want it, and how I want it, life's going to be good. How, life can't be found in denying ourselves. That, that just doesn't make any sense. And yet, the irony is that so often in the pursuit of what we want, how we want it, and when we want it, we so often lose our lives. We lose sight of what's truly important. By the way, isn't it interesting that in both scenarios Jesus gives, you lose your life. Do you notice that? In other words, there's no alternative. It's not like, well, I can gain my life over here or I can lose my life. No, you lose your life over here or you lose your life over here. There is no other option than losing your life. Either you lose it trying to save it doing what the world says is important, doing what you think, what you want, how you want it, when you want it, 
or you lose it for Jesus. And in the end, you find it. But there's no way around losing your life. There's no, other, there's no third option. Yeah, I don't like those two doors, Jesus. Give me a third door. Nope, there is no third door. That is it. If you were born into this world, you are born to lose your life. That's not an option. The difference is in who will you lose your life for? And who we lose our life for can make all the difference in our lives. And according to Jesus, if we lose our life for him, in the end, we find it. After making that promise, Jesus asks a question. And it's the question for our series this morning. You're probably wondering, when are we actually going to get to the question? Well, here it is. Verse 26. What good will it be? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? When Jesus talks about the soul here, that's another way of of saying that our lives are at stake in this decision to follow Him. And in reference to our souls, I think we can think of our souls in in really two dimensions here. And this is not in your notes. (coughs) You can certainly write them down. I'm not going to stop you from doing that, but it's not in your notes. But first, our, our soul speaks of, when Jesus speaks here of our souls, it speaks of an internal dimension of our lives. Our soul has something to do with our, our mind and our, our will, even our emotional makeup. That's, all of that is wrapped up in, in the Greek word that's used here, that Jesus uses here. And so it, it's possible to gain the whole world and yet lose those things along the way. You, you can gain the whole world without Jesus. It is possible. But you can't keep from forfeiting yourself internally without Jesus. Can't happen. Your mind, your will, your emotions getting all out of whack along the way. You need him leading your life if you're going to make it without losing what matters the most in regard to those things. Speaking of what matters most, the reference to the soul also calls us to think of ourselves not just in terms of our internal nature, but also to think of ourselves in terms of our eternal nature. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, it may seem like Jesus here is saying that it's what you do that gets you into heaven. It's what you do that gets you your salvation when he speaks in regard to rewarding each person for what they have done. But remember the context of what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. What each person has done is in reference to following Jesus. What have you done? Have you followed Jesus or not? Have you given your life to him or not? Now, there is a life to be lived after you do that, but it comes down to either A or B. Are you losing your life for him? Are you living life the way that you want to live it? And what each person has done is in reference to following and giving your life to him. Jesus' life and death and resurrection are what makes salvation possible. Not anything that we have done, but it's in our following of him that salvation becomes a reality in our own lives. And so in a world that's constantly about the external and the temporal, Jesus' question calls each of us to remember the internal and the eternal aspects of our lives. We live in the midst of a culture that has a price tag on everything, does it not? And yet we live in a culture that increasingly knows the value of absolutely nothing. And Jesus would say, know the value of your internal 
nature. Know the value of the eternal aspect of your life. And Jesus calls each of us to realize what is truly priceless. So as we close today, certainly Jesus' question here in Matthew chapter 16 offers a number of applications for our lives, but let me just give you three. First, be careful of having the price tag switched on you. Be careful of having the price tags switched on you. Tony Campola is an author and uh, preacher, and in his book, uh, the book is titled, Who Who Switched the Price Tags? It's It's a really good book. But in his book, he tells the story, which is kind of the, the impetus for the, the title of the book. He tells the story of growing up on the streets of Philadelphia. And one time, one of his buddies had the idea to break into a pawn shop late one evening. They didn't steal anything, though. This was our idea of fun. They didn't steal anything. What they did, though, is pulled off a prank. They spent the entire night in the pawn shop switching all the price tags on all of the items. And so in the next morning when the pawn shop opened, there were items of great value that had incredibly cheap price tags on them. And then there were items of very little value that had incredibly expensive price tags on them. And in reality, that's what our enemy, Satan, does. It's exactly what he does. He lures us into thinking in our lives that the things that are truly of great value, that we know that God's Word says are of great value, they're really not worth that much. It's it's, it's not all that value. It's not nearly as valuable as what God says it is. Especially in terms of our time, our commitment, our attention. They've got a little price tag on them. But then there are things in our world that we value way, 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 way too much way too much, only to find out that they weren't worth the incredible price that we paid for them in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our faith. And yet these things that we valued way too much were of very little value in the end, all because we had the price tag switched on us. That's why I say be careful. Be careful of having the price tag switched on you. Secondly, I believe Jesus' question calls us to commit to letting Jesus move from the passenger seat to the driver's seat. Allow him to move from the passenger seat to the driver's seat. I I love how the message version puts this section of verses here, uh, specifically verses 24 and 25. I'm not going to have it on the screen, but I will read it to you. And If you have access to the message version, you can follow along. But uh, here's how the message version puts it. It said, Then Jesus went to work on his disciples. I love that imagery right there alone. But then Jesus went to work on his disciples. He said, Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I'll show you how. Self-help is no, is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. Those words, you're not in the driver's seat, I am, really resonate with me. You know, one of my greatest points of, I, I'm not anxious about a whole lot of things, um, but I do get anxious about my kids. It's, it's, I'm not a nervous person. I'm not a worrier, but I do get anxious about my, certain things about my kids. And one of the biggest points of anxiousness for me, and I'm not even there yet. I'm like three years away now, um, but is when my kids start driving. 
Some of you have gone through that phase. Some of you are going through that phase. Some of you have yet to reach that phase like I am. But it, it really does scare me to death. Maybe it's because I know that they've seen me drive, and that's not a good thought to think about them trying to drive like I do. Um, but we'll leave that there. Uh, we'll leave that there. But the reality is at some point, they're going to be in the driver's seat. And I'm not going to be in the driver's seat. <laughs> I mean, I'm, they, they're going to have my life in their hands at some points because I'm going to be in the car with them, but not in the driver's seat. I guess I could get one of those uh, side steering wheel things, you know, and, and side pedals that they have in the driver's training cars, but we, we won't do that. But, you know, speaking of control, though, that, that's really what it comes down to, right, is control. I, I'm, I'm having to give up control. We struggle giving up control. That's why the term driver's seat is such an interesting metaphor for control. Because whoever sits in the driver's seat has control. Ultimately, control over where that car is going, how fast it's going to go, how, how quickly it's going to get there, where you go. Oftentimes, what's going on with like backseat drivers or side seat drivers, right? What are they struggling with? Control. They want control. And when it comes to Jesus, we all want him in the car. Amen? We all want him in the car. We just want him more in the passenger seat so that he's available if we run into any kind of trouble, right? Need to know you're there, Jesus. I'd still like to control where the car's going. But as long as you're beside me, I know we're probably okay, right? Everybody wants Jesus in the passenger seat. But normally we aren't, we aren't all that interested in giving him the wheel until we get into a situation where we're in over our head and then we're all in agreement with Carrie Underwood, right? Jesus, take the wheel. Take the wheel. But Jesus doesn't just want to take the wheel from time to time. Jesus wants to know, will you let me be in the driver's seat of your life? Will you let me be in charge of your life, where you're going, how you get there? Of course, it's not always easy letting him drive, right? That's why it's called taking up your cross. But it's the only way to get to the life that is truly life. And if the road you're on isn't running through a cross, then it doesn't lead to life doesn't lead to life. And in light of that, I'll leave you with a third challenge. And it's simply this. Choose the pain of the cross over the pain of regret. I know those aren't two great options when it comes, nobody wants to choose pain, right? But the reality is, that is the reality. Each and every one of us are going to lose our lives. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow. And I'm not, not trying to be morbid, but that is the reality of this world that we live in. Each and every one of us is going to lose our lives. It's not an option. But who or what are you going to lose it for? It's not an easy road to follow Jesus. I know some preachers may, and, and there's times where I talk, and there, there are countless benefits of following Jesus. But I got to be real with you. It's not easy. It's not easy. It is not an easy road to follow Jesus. And there will be times where if you pledge your allegiance unequivocally to him, you are going to suffer. There are going to be hardships. But I can tell you 
that the pain or suffering that we may face from choosing to follow him cannot even begin to compare to the pain or regret you will face by choosing not to follow him. I like what martyred missionary Jim Elliott once said. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. After all, what good will it be if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul?